90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, I'm surviving the first week of the new year. How about yourself? Uh, I am as well. I am down in Phoenix at the American Meteorological Society meeting, and this is coming out a little late because you didn't have power for a while. (laughs) I didn't, and it's really exciting for me because we got, I haven't got the official total yet because it's still melting, but we got anywhere from three to six inches of snow, and it's really lovely. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and shockingly, which never happens in Oklahoma snow there was no wind and so this morning the snow was just on all the trees and it was this beautiful winter wonderland but yeah we didn't have power for like 30 hours because of it because of course it was an ice storm first as all good Oklahoma weather is right (laughs) so yeah it's been real exciting and you were like let's record and I was like sorry man (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep, you didn't have power. You were you were cooking with a camp stove. I sure was. And uh, <laughs> then I was driving across Kansas. So. Oh, yee-haw. <laughs> but here we are. We made it, right? We have. And we're going to kick off the new year with an interview show. Yeah. So just a couple <laughs> weeks ago, we talked to Dr. Nick Heavens about climate and the climate of Mars, which is even more exciting. So, Dr. Nick, thanks for coming on our show. Hey, John. Hey, Shannon. How's it going? Um, it's going well. I, you know, I'm at my in-laws, and so uh, <laughs> I'm currently hoping that the dog doesn't interrupt this interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's a constant worry at both John and Mai's house as well. So. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so, Nick, could you tell us a little bit how you got into climate modeling or dust modeling and a little bit about your background? Okay. Um, It all started when my high school gave me a month off when I was a junior to do some sort of project that anything, I could do anything as long as I could justify it to my teachers. And this is something (laughs) that they generally did with students at my school. And so my mother's best friend at the time had another friend who worked for NASA in NASA Ames in the South Bay of San Francisco, near where Google is headquartered now. And he actually worked on air traffic control software. And I was very crazy about weather. I'd been crazy about weather for the last, like, three years. And so it all sort of arranged itself. So I lived for about a month in that area, and I went to work every day at NASA Ames. And at the time, he thought I would help him somehow with weather radar interpretation for air traffic control. But in the end, yeah, I did a little bit with the air traffic control. Uh, If you've ever wanted to see a bunch of pilots in a room and a bunch of air traffic controllers also in the room, and they're pretending that they're talking to each other and doing a simulated air traffic control session, I can tell you how you arrange that. (laughs) (laughs) But what I ended up doing really was uh, working with a guy named Chris McKay, who does a variety of things, but his basic idea is just trying to find life on other bodies in the solar system. So he's fascinated by the idea of life on Titan, life on Mars, uh, and he was interested in climate in Death Valley, California. And so I work with him on some things having to do with that, since uh, uh, his understanding of Earth meteorology was apparently less than a 17-year-old. I'm skeptical (laughs) skeptical of that point. But sometimes you just need someone to look at something so you don't have to waste your time with it. Well, nothing really came out of that, but he told me something that never left me, which was, we know a lot about hurricanes on the Earth. We know a lot about how to predict them, but we really don't know anything about Martian dust storms. And so that sort of got me started. I I mean, I went to the University of Chicago. I studied geophysical sciences, which ended up being a mix of geology, meteorology, and oceanography. And there I had a professor by the name of Fred Ziegler, 
who was obsessed with the Permian. He had made it his life's goal to understand the Permian. Uh, and in some ways, he was the father of modern paleogeography after plate tectonics. Um, so many of his students ended up becoming very famous. Uh, Fred uh, retired to take over a water mill in West Virginia uh, because he was convinced that uh, the world was going to run out of uh, useful natural resources. And therefore, we needed to know how our ancestors generated power. But he was obsessed with the Permian. And it's a bit of a roundabout story, but uh, when I went to graduate school, I wrote all of these applications saying that I wanted to reconstruct what Mars was like three billion, four billion years ago. And then I went to Caltech, and in my last five minutes of visiting Caltech, when I was deciding where to go to graduate school, I ran into a guy named Mark Richardson, who was studying mainly modern weather on Mars. And I realized that actually what I was really interested in doing was what he was doing. <laughs> because he was actually trying to figure out how dust storms worked. Uh, and so in graduate school, I spent a lot of time worrying about what the weather on Mars was like. And then I was looking for a postdoc. And it was a very, very unusual situation where a friend of, guy I'd really, not really a friend, a guy I'd run into the, at a conference by the name of Jasper Koch, who's now at UCLA. Jasper sent me an email saying, yeah, there's this woman at, uh, you know, uh, Cornell, Professor Nally Malwald, and she needs a postdoc, and I can't do it. So would you like, you know, you're interested in dust, you should, you should email her. So I emailed Natalie, who is one of the most important climate scientists in the U.S. And we have a meeting at, age, at the American Geophysical Union meeting as I'm about, you know, about six months before I'm due to graduate. And Natalie says, well, I have this project, but it's a little weird. It's, it's about, you know, dust 300 million years ago. I said, is it the Permian? And she said, why, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> well, there you go. I was sold. Um, and pretty much since that time, I've worked on dust of the late Carboniferous, early Permian, and Martian dust storms. And everything I can imagine that's connected with it. It's, you know, people are like, do you have a narrow research topic? No, no, no. I do everything. Everything that has <laughs> that's connected to those two things. <laughs> um, that's it's super funny because it's very similar to John and I have weather and rock backgrounds. But Nick, you're actually doing both of those things, whereas John and I sort of, you know, picked one or the other. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It, <laughs> it it makes me feel a little weird sometimes because people insist that I fit in one box or the other. Mm-hmm. Yep. Geoscientists, well, that's where it's at. I really liked that you said, you know, geophysical sciences, and you got a little bit of Earth, a little bit of atmosphere, a little bit of ocean. Uh, I feel like that could have saved Shannon and I a lot of money instead of getting <laughs> several undergrad degrees. <laughs> it's so true. It's a funny department. It was originally a department of meteorology and a department of geology, and then they sort of got together, and as you can imagine, it's, it's, it can be very stressful sometimes. <laughs> so they, they locate themselves strategically on different floors just to make sure that they won't, you know, get too much into each other's space. Right. Where, do the, where do the poor oceanographers fit in all this? <laughs> Usually they're stuck in the back on the fifth floor um, down the hall from the deep uh, pressure researchers. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so... I, I'm really curious. You said you spent a lot of time looking at the weather on Mars. How does one study weather on another planet where even here we have such an under-constrained problem and don't <laughs> understand it very well? H how do you go about that in a completely different atmosphere with almost no observations? Well, the funny thing is pretty much all the observations that we do on the Earth are done on Mars just with less coverage, and sometimes not as good equipment. W um, with one exception, there's actually a technique that we now use on the Earth all the time that was pretty much pioneered at places like Mars. 
Um, and so we, we don't think of it a lot because we think of it as the way we find where we're driving. So global positioning system, GPS, you can actually use GPS to figure out what the atmospheric temperature and density is. And you can actually measure um, humidity, too, in the lower atmosphere. Um, and that's actually technically a technique called radio occultation, where you're really just sending radio waves through the um, atmosphere, and they're diffracted like light through a prism based on the intervening density between them. So that, that was actually one of the first things we did at Mars um, when we actually started sending things into orbit because it's pretty easy. You need to transmit radio signals back to Earth. So why not send them through the atmosphere and measure something about them? And now that's something we use all the time with GPS satellites to figure out what's going on with the weather on Earth. And it's really improved our observational network for uh, forcing weather models. Uh, but, you know, plenty of other things go on Mars. Sometimes we actually send things to the surface. Um, Sometimes all we do is we take cameras and we look at uh, the atmosphere, or we look at the sun and we figure out how much dust or water ice is in the atmosphere. But sometimes we actually send genuine, genuine meteorological instruments like you'd have at you know, your home weather station, you know, a barometer or a thermometer or a hygrometer to measure how much moisture there's in the air. Uh, sometimes they have to be a little special because Mars is a little special and you're measuring a lot less pressure and different temperatures. Uh, but, 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 you know, that's an important part of it. And then sometimes we send satellites and we do a lot of the things we do on Earth. Um, you know, on Earth we are constantly looking at, uh, you know, literally just using the eyes of the satellite to see what's going on. So we see clouds, we see hurricanes on the Earth, that kind of thing you know, low pressure, you know, sort of features that we've learned to interpret as low pressure systems or high pressure systems, or that storm is probably going to produce a tornado, that kind of thing. So on Mars, we have, um, you know, cameras that we, you know, put on satellites and look and we see different kinds of dust storms, different types of water ice clouds, or we'll look at a different part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So we'll look at the heat coming off of the atmosphere um, and we'll figure out, you know, how warm the atmosphere is, again, how much dust, how much water ice, we're sort of obsessed with those things, how much carbon dioxide ice. Um, so that, you know, all of, all, pretty much all of the remote sensing, sensing techniques we can think of the Earth. Oh, we've now started, you know, on the Earth for the last few years, we've now um, occasionally been uh, shooting lasers at the Earth um, to figure out, you know, things like wind velocity or just, intervening aerosol or clouds or whatever. And on Mars, we were just curious about uh, how high various things on Mars are. I mean, you know, Mars has some of the highest mountains in the solar system. It has some deep craters. We wanted to measure that very precisely. So we, uh, several years ago, there was a, a spacecraft called the Mars Global Surveyor that had an instrument on it called the Mars Orbiter Laser Altimeter. And basically, it was shooting a laser at beam at Mars to figure out how much uh, you know, how high everything was. And then people realize, oh, wait, we're getting occasional scattering of this laser beam back at us. Um, and it's not something, you know, it's not like we bought something at the supermarket. What, you know, you know, this isn't a barcode we're scanning here. <laughs> turns out it's clouds. Um, and so it turns out it was absorbing the laser beam more than they were, more than they were expecting. Uh, and... That's another source of information. I actually wrote an entire paper on that last year of how do you get that information out of the out of the laser beam shooting at the planet to figure out its topography. So it's a it's a big it's a great mix of things, um, but much of it has parallels on the Earth. So I find myself reading a lot of papers about how you sense things on the Earth before I start analyzing anything I'm getting from Mars. Okay, so. We, we can use similar sensing techniques in both environments, sure, and we're sending new probes to Mars and uh, new spaceships and new instrumentation systems all around the Earth. So then let's flip that question around and say, well, what do you do in the Carboniferous when there definitely was no remote sensing systems <laughs> or ASOS stations set up? Well, uh, I, I think Sh Shannon was talking about cores earlier. Uh, in some sense, the rock record is 
the closest thing we're going to have to remote sensing techniques for the ancient atmosphere. Uh, and part of it is we don't, you know, we have to spend a lot of time learning how to interpret that information. Uh, everything from isotopes to the structures of clay minerals to, uh, you know, very simple things like the distribution of coal. Uh, so, you know, one technique I've been using lately to try to figure out how much dust was in the atmosphere 300 million years ago is I've become fascinated with coal ash. Uh, that is the inorganic material that is found in coal, which, to be honest, for anybody who's ever mined coal is an inconvenience. And for <laughs> anyone who's had to be around burning coal is, well, sickening, to say the least. Uh, but it turns out, from what I can figure out, that the particular composition of coal ash contains a contribution of atmospheric dust. And so we can actually get a record of how much dust, on relatively long intervals of time, was falling into coal swamps, you know, millions of years ago, which I find absolutely fascinating. Yeah, coal swamp is a great place to... Um you know, you don't have a lot of decay or anything like that. So it's a great place to keep track of things that don't get eroded or eaten or anything in the geologic record. Um, but Nick, as a for people who maybe haven't listened to uh, our interview with Dr. Sorgan or anything, how can you tell dust in a rock from anything else that happens to be in a rock? Well, when you're dealing with a lot of things that are chemically similar to dust, you really can't. Uh, so, for instance, you know, rivers are filled with silt, uh, you know, a certain size of particle, a certain composition that has a lot of silica in it. So, if you were looking at a rock that came from an ancient river, you'd have a lot of time of picking out that there was a desert nearby and, or a dry area nearby that was blowing a lot of dust into the river. So, you actually have to find places where you're expecting dust to be relatively rare. So Dr. Sorrigan, who you mentioned, my collaborator, um, is very much into looking at limestones, say ancient you know, coral atolls would be a good, good example of a kind of place that she'd look. And that's a place where you don't expect there to be a lot of dust um, okay. or things that would look like dust because... Uh, corals like to grow in very clear water where lots of sunlight can get to them. And so anything that would cloud it up would tend to kill the coral eventually and not really lead to formation of the limestone. Um, and, you know, you look for places that are relatively offshore, so hopefully no rivers have mixed anything in there. And the great thing about atolls is they actually build up sort of a uh, you know, a little hill in the sea or sometimes an island. So anything, you know, anything that would be flowing into, flowing around would tend to, you know, want to flow away from the, you know, the, the hill. The, everything flows off the hill. So the idea of the only thing that you're going to see, hopefully, is things that are falling from the air. That's not always, you know, true atmospheric dust. Sometimes a volcano erupts and you get volcanic ash that falls. So there's a variety of, you know, variety of things you do, you do. You dissolve the limestone very carefully to sort of leach out the silica-rich material. Then you look at it under uh, various micro types of microscopes, and uh, you're looking for stuff that's very rounded often because um, when you're blowing dust around, it tends to crack into other sand and other dust and tends to get a very rounded appearance, whereas the volcanic ash tends to get very sharp edges and, um, you know, very uh, glassy kind of things. And so it's those kinds of techniques that you kind of differentiate one kind of thing from the other. But to be honest, um, I think we're still very much working out how to recover dust from the rock record. It's something that sometimes we see in very large amounts. That is, sometimes you see deposits that are in almost entirely of dust. And those are called lusses. 
and the great thing about Luces is that we have a lot of experience with Luces over the last few hundred thousand years. Uh, in fact, a lot of our most fertile soils in the world are pretty much built on these Luces. Um, and so that gives us a good understanding of what we might be looking for uh, much farther back in the rock record. And so you said that we have a lot of experience with Luces lately. I mean, because a lot of Luces deposited during glacial periods, right? Because you've got all this, all your waters locked up in glaciers. And so cold glacial times are actually really dusty times on Earth anyway. Yes. Um, and a bit of a dispute is whether the glaciers themselves actually add to the dustiness by crushing up rock under conditions that make it easy to form dust as opposed to clay, you know, weathering things away as clays. Um, so there's a sort of distinction between clay and dust in terms of size. Uh, and so one idea is that the, the glaciers are sort of grinding up rocks so that you produce large amounts of dust particles, in addition to causing dryness that leads to um, the ability to easily mobilize dust and then send it to wherever it gets stored later. So uh, you said to mobilize dust. So that's putting dust in the atmosphere, right? Which can have some pretty significant impacts on, I would say, both weather and climate probably, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if you think about the Dust Bowl in the United States in the 1930s, uh, massive amounts of dust were being transported from the Great Plains of the U.S., um, you know, towards the east. And you, you know, you read stories of just the sky going dark in Washington, D.C., various colors, red, yellow, black, even blue sometimes um, as this stuff would move. So, yes, certainly on the weather and the climate, of course, you know, dust will block. Um, well, it, it's, it's, it's arguable exactly what the effects of dust on climate are. It does seem to have some effect on uh, atmospheric radiation, but it varies where you are. So, for instance, over the Sahara Desert, because the Sahara Desert actually is covered with dust and it's about the same color as the rest of the Sahara Desert, the impact is fairly small uh, of dust in the atmosphere in terms of blocking light, sunlight that's coming, you know, coming in. However, if you take that very bright dust and you put it over the ocean, suddenly you have this, you know, little mirrors reflecting uh, solar radiation from the ocean, which is, you know, on the average, a very dark thing and very absorbing of solar radiation. And so over the ocean, uh, Saharan dust can have a big impact. And I guess that goes both to weather and to climate, uh, but certainly on the weather uh, if you have dust storms on the Sahara, they can actually lower the water temperatures off of Africa and impact the formation of hurricanes um, in the several months after the dust storms occur. Because, the, you know, the, the, the hurricanes need warm waters in order to form. Does the dust act as cloud condensation nuclei, too, in terms of hurricane formation, or no? Yes, and... And, some, and sometimes cloud condensation nuclei is not, are not necessarily good for the formation of certain types of weather systems. You could, too mm -hmm. much cloud condensation nuclei can be, shall we say, too much of a good thing <laughs> because it ends up forcing things to be relatively small water droplets when sometimes larger water droplets are necessary for certain processes. Um, and... You know, again, it, it, it is, you know, it's weird talking about this because certain types of nuclear are very selective. So dust, dust will have a certain impact on things that say spores released by trees or um, uh, sea salt particles. That's another common kind of uh, nucleus that uh, dust might compete with over the ocean they will have a different impact depending on the amount of moisture in the air. And everything that I've seen so far suggests that if dust is involved in, um, you know, 
significantly impacting cloud condensation in hurricane-forming regions off of West Africa, it's probably not a positive impact. But, um, but that story seems to go you know, one way or the other every few years. Well, and you just talked about all these complicating factors about you know, different kinds of dust having different affinities for being cloud condensation nuclei and all these feedbacks. So is this accounted for in models routinely or parameterized out in some way, or we throw our hands up and don't? <laughs> no, no. The This is actually something that's really happened over the last decade or two, and Certainly, my postdoc advisor, Natalie Malwald, is certainly one of the key figures in bringing aerosol to the attention of the climate community and working very hard, um, along with, I mean, cast of thousands, to incorporate these effects in modern global climate models. Um, everything, I mean, I have mentioned some of the aerosols have been very important, dust and sea salt, uh, but certainly sulfate aerosol because of its um, relation to volcanic eruptions as well as the production of various sulfi uh, you know, sulfur species by uh, biological organisms in the ocean, um, wildfires or even uh, natural or even fires that uh, humans make in order to clear land. Those produce what are known as black carbon aerosols. Um, that are very important, and of course, any other type of industrial pollution that produces, you know, many types of aerosols. And yes, there's been considerable work over the last 10 or 20 years to bring those effects into models because they are very crucial for understanding, particularly, how climate will evolve over the next century, uh, because uh, some of that stuff adds to the impact of, uh, you know, adding carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide to the, to the air. But some of that detracts from it, and understanding that balance is actually quite critical in, in, in understanding how climate evolves from decade to decade. So not to tie this back into my own interest, um, but <laughs> you just said black carbon and how that has a significant effect. Um, there was a whole bunch of work that came out of, you know, the new drilling of Chicxulub that talked about how if you have an impactor, a bolide that hits a an oil-rich rock, you're actually going to mobilize a whole lot of black carbon and the effects that that could have on uh, climate you know, in the near term climate after a any a meteorite impact. And it turns out that that's probably a pretty big driver of what happened at the Cretaceous Paleogene boundary. It is fascinating to hear that. I missed the Chicxulub special session at AGU, I'm afraid. It was really funny. Someone said, I thought you'd be in the Chicxulub session. I, was, <laughs> I, I, I said, uh, no, I, I anyway, I was in another relevant <laughs> session and I I thought it was I thought it was funny, but yeah, a few years ago, I'm trying to remember which JPL scientist I was talking to, but he was saying, "Oh, it was because Chicxulub fell in a large amount of gypsum and anhydrite mm -hmm. and it put up, you know, sulfate aerosol because of this." Mm -hmm. now, and 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 actually, there's sort of two different, two, two different things, because sulfate aerosol just takes the sunlight and it just casts it back into space. It's, very, right. it's a very efficient, what they call, backscatterer. Black carbon is just wicked, because not only <laughs> does it keep the sunlight from getting to the surface, but then it heats up any of the surrounding atmosphere, because it just absorbs the visible radiation, and then it heats up, it heats up the surrounding atmosphere, and it completely, and if you put enough of it, in, of it, especially really high, as you must have done in, in that impactor, mm -hmm. it completely changes the thermal structure of the atmosphere. Right. And then cools the surface. And I, I, I can't even, you know, I'd have to see how it's been working out in the climate models. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Shannon. The idea of impacting into, you know, coal or oil sands or, you know, whatever, you know, organic carbon-rich sediment that you can imagine. I, I imagine you're an expert on impactors, so you know how many impactors we've had in Earth history. But then, you know, or at least the current count and the, you know, the idealized distributions. Mm -hmm. But we know that only a few of them seem to have had the kind of devastating effects that we see at the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary. 
Right. And so understanding why, it does seem that understanding the sedimentary environment where you're actually, you know, sticking these things is pretty pretty crucial. Yeah, it's, um, I looked at a lot of the large impactors in the Devonian, the supposed Alamo impact in Nevada. And yep. um, so I did a lot of PMAG work on that too. And it's interesting to read these Chicxulub things and then to go back and think about that. So it's like not only in training all this stuff in the stratosphere, but yeah, do you have a reservoir rock or not? Like that's an unbelievable thing to me when I started reading those papers. So it's it's very complicated and it's interesting how much additional things that we can learn about that as we understand the rock record more to, to really get at past climate. And so one of the things I think about is how do you model such extreme scenarios? Because mm-hmm. climate models are designed to model ultimately, you know, really they're designed to model nothing further back than the last ice age most of the right. time. And anything you do beyond that is kind of, hmm, is this really a good idea? And, <laughs> and especially worrying about, you know, such extreme situations. There, there certainly have been pe- people who have worked on this and, you know, done their best. Alan Robach at Rutgers is someone I think who's been very ingenious, uh, or at least just very daring. I think it's more daring than ingenuity sometimes <laughs> to do this. But, but again, modeling these extreme situations can be very, you know, very, very challenging. And, you know, it's a good way of breaking the model. Um, so, 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 so whenever I hear about something like, oh yes, we're going to put huge amounts of black carbon in the atmosphere, I go, okay, (laughs) sounds like a good idea. I will get many segmentation faults. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you, you know, you said the, the segmentation faults, so I have to go down, uh, this rabbit hole for a little bit here of, (laughs) I mean, weather models themselves, you know, for doing three, five, 10, 30 day forecasts are incredibly complicated. And we're, we're pretty much taking equations of motion and integrating forward in time. But when you go so far back and you have to take such large time steps for this to be computationally feasible, how numerically stable are these? Well, I'll, 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 I'll turn you back right there. The good news is that we don't actually try to model to some extent. I mean, there's, there are some ways that we, we do this, but we don't try to model the entirety of the climate over millions of years timescales. We sort of figure out ways of taking slices and we're still kind of working out the techniques for this. Um, I, I like to use the word asymmetric coupling, which is a funny way of saying we have some components of the climate model that run more in real time, and we have some components of the cli- climate system that run in larger time steps. So with a typical climate model, I'm running it with a time step that isn't far off a weather model. I mean, it's it's usually the spatial resolution is um, is is less. So I'm I'm modeling say 400 kilometer length scales rather than five to ten kilometer length scales of modern weather models. Um, and there's the so-called current Friedrich Levy criterion or the CFL criterion that basically says that. If you start blowing things into the next grid cell that you're using, or actually, sorry, not the next grid cell you're using, the one over, one over from the next grid cell you're using, then you're going to become numerically unstable. So the way you get around that is shortening your time step. But that said, the kind of climate models I use use time steps that aren't that far off weather model time steps in the end. But when I say use an offline ice sheet model, which I sometimes use to check what I'm doing, that will work on much longer time steps, uh, probably closer to a year or two or something. I, th- I, th- it, I don't think, I think a year maybe a little, I think they have to integrate over a seasonal cycle. And then there are some modelers who have just decided, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run the model for sort of 10 years at a time adjust 
some aspects of the of 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 the climate that is for instance i'll take this offline ice sheet model and i'll run it for a thousand years then i will put that ice sheet adjusted ice sheet back into the climate model and then run for 10 years and go back and forth that way so that's sort of the asymmetric approach to climate modeling so we do if you do it that way you do keep things numerically stable but Often what I do is just figure out the boundary conditions that I think are plausible and then run the model for about a thousand years with, you know, a half hour time step, which takes forever, which takes several right. weeks. <laughs> but what I'm doing is I'm not really seeking to reproduce the exact weather conditions over a thousand years because from a chaos perspective, yeah, even 30 days is pretty much too much for a weather model. Things start <laughs> diverging after and sort of on the five to eight day time scale. What I'm really trying to get is the rough average conditions. Maybe some idea of variability, but climate models even don't handle short-term variability particularly well. What you're seeking is, in some sense, some sort of equilibrium state. Something that is the rough average climate on the time scale of maybe 30 years, which is the kind of time scale that we think about when we talk about, you know, on, you know when you hear your weather forecast, the normal temperature for this day is 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Or, sorry, the normal high for this you know, day is 45 degrees Fahrenheit. The normal low is 23 degrees Fahrenheit. The normal precipitation is you know, 0 0.03 inches, that kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that you're really seeking in, in, in the kinds of climate modeling that I'm doing. Um, and there, is, there certainly is some refinements when people worry about the 20th century or the 21st century. But most climate modeling is really sort of seeking an equilibrium state to understand the, you know, the, the, the climate normal state, this sort of 30-year average, as opposed to worrying, is it going to rain tomorrow? And it just, it just means that you worry about different things, and you approximate things at different resolutions, and you worry about different time scales. But you're right, it's the same equations of fluid motion in the end. So are you doing these simulations locally or on some NSF hardware, uh, you know, parallelizing these things? Or how, how did, what's your workflow like for running these kinds of models? Well, <laughs> it's hysterical because now I'm working on three different supercomputers. So I've got one that's run by NSF out in Boulder, uh, actually not in Boulder, somewhere in Wyoming, actually. I've got one that, or... And it's actually run by the National Center for Atmospheric Research, but yeah, they're ultimately funded by NSF, and it's only through NSF funding I have access to it. So thank you, National Science Foundation. Thank you, National <laughs> Center for Atmospheric Research, Computational and Information Systems Laboratory. Uh, I also have a supercomputer uh, that NASA supplies that I use for a few other projects, um, which are mainly things relevant to NASA, uh, more about what the Earth's climate was like billions of years ago. And then uh, Hampton University, uh, my department, which we're going to share with other departments, they shouldn't worry, uh, but we're still setting it up. We've got a new supercomputer. It's a small one. It's only about 4,000, 5,000 processors, but I'm currently figuring out how to make it work and trying to put programs on it. And yeah, it's all parallelized. Um, uh, and when I tried to, a few years ago, actually, I started a project where I actually had to figure out how to parallelize code in one of these models. That was, that was a learning experience. <laughs> yeah. Usually I have someone do that for me. I, I have very <laughs> smart professional software engineers to do it. And I'm glad they, that they exist because, boy, do I not understand how that works. I managed to get it working in the end, but... Uh, but that, but that was a particular challenge. But yeah, it's, 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 it's all y'all have. You have to parallelize it because none of these things work fast otherwise. Um, it's a difference between, you know, being, you know, running some of my model runs in a few weeks and spending. Well, I mean, it would, you know, hi, my uh, research career is over and the simulation has not completed. <laughs> 
Right. You know, we always used to say that uh, the wonderful thing about embarrassingly parallel problems is it was embarrassing how long it took us to figure out how to do them properly and how few people actually do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, it I is s- a really hard process. Indeed. So, Nick, since I don't know anything about all that computing stuff, but I'm actually surprised that, you know, it doesn't take that much more to run because you're doing it at, like, weather model time steps. That's really interesting. But where does this come in when we're talking about modeling Mars? Because we can see Mars weather, like you talked about, but Mars climate? Yeah, it's it's it, we don't have long-term climate. The whole notion of a weather model and a climate model on Mars is 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 one of those situations where planetary scientists use terminology that would get them in trouble if they spent too much time talking to Earth scientists. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Not surprising. <laughs> I think we use climate model as a euphemism for we don't know enough to actually run a weather model properly. <laughs> That said, there are climate models that are used to actually simulate climate, but usually they're worrying about trying to interpret the rock record from billions of years ago. And, and, and so, so we can leave it at that. But in terms of actually having long-term climate records to allow you to... Certainly, we don't have 30-year normals. Um, and I say that as someone who really does help with keep you know help with organizing some of our most important climate records of mars at the moment uh that yeah we don't have 30 years so we can't really say it's a climate in the way that we understand the you know understand the earth's climate uh that said uh, mars mars whatever models are, are are very interesting and you're welcome to ask questions if you can if if you can think of any that aren't you know you know that that uh, that that occur to you. I, I I can only say that we know less about Mars, and so the kinds of things that you would expect to see in an Earth climate model or an Earth weather model, you just might not see in a Mars. We might might just be putting in a Mars climate weather, whatever you call it, model in the next year or so. It's that kind of thing. Or we'll put it in, but we won't necessarily know how to put it in. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example because otherwise, you know, you'll be, you'll be sort of stuck for a question. <laughs> because it's actually a pretty funny story. So we have, these, the, we have a, a type of model that we use on Mars that's called a large eddy model. We have these on Earth. They're a way of basically looking at fluid flows at a very small scale. And the whole idea of a large eddy model is you resolve as much of the flow as possible. Um, So these can be meter scale kinds of things. Um, And they're very useful if you want to understand the boundary layer, sort of the, the part of the atmosphere that interacts with the surface in terms of transfer of momentum and heat and you know things like dust and sea salt, et cetera, et cetera. Well, because this kind of thing resol- you know resolves things on the meter scale, uh, there are a lot of things that are about extrapolating larger scale flows to smaller scale flows, and figuring out basically how do you deal with whatever is going on below, just below the scale that you're resolving. And it's effectively a way of preventing, you know, numerical instabilities that John's talking about. Well, I was working on a project recently and, you know, my co-investigator comes to me and says, oh, it looks like we've been doing this all wrong and that everybody has been doing this all wrong. Turns out that they just stuck, that people had just been sticking in a particular constant that was used on Earth. They just use whatever was in the Earth model. And it turns out that if you do that, it just puts this unbelievably unrealistic drag on the flow if you simulate this for Mars. Because Mars has a much thinner atmosphere. 
And that apparently made a big difference for this constant that was somehow proportional to how much atmosphere there was. So, and this is just error. <laughs> no, it wasn't just a copy paste error. It was we don't we know we need this. We have no idea whether this is something that needs to be adjusted for whatever planet we're on. So we're just going to leave it in here and hope it works. <laughs> and I laugh at this, but I know that I do the same thing. Sometimes I will just be translating something from one situation to another and just say, I think this shouldn't change. Let's just leave it in. I'll worry about it later. <laughs> it's I mean, amazing how you can see, you know, somebody else is talking about what they do in their field and they say something like that and you go, really? But then they ask you about your field and there's a whole set of things that you've yeah. become desensitized to. Exactly. In your field. That's what I was trying to think about, like constants and like the Archie equations of trying to figure out, you know, water saturation in rocks. It totally feels like that. It's like uh, one, 1.1, whatever you want, <laughs> you know? The, uh, the geometric factor in electric field sensing comes to mind for me of, what's this? It represents the geometry. Can you calculate it? No. What do you do? You adjust it until your data looks right. And <laughs> Yay, constants. Yeah. <laughs> Their whole existence is, this doesn't look right. Put a number in there. <laughs> I love it. So... Where do, what's the most exciting thing to you that's going to happen over the next few years in, in dust or in modeling? Is it going to be advances in computational power, advances in understanding, advances in getting some of these constants from experimental packages either on other planets or through experiments in the lab here? Or what's going to help your field out? I am really intrigued about something I learned about just this week, and... And then I heard about it and I said, oh, I need to read about it. And that is, I'm sure, you know, both of you have lived in an area where you've heard about supercell thunderstorms. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are the kinds of nasty thunderstorms that often produce tornadoes or large hail. And uh, they have some really great presentation on radar, and then they sometimes, you know, end up assembling themselves into larger things called mesoscale convective systems and form squall lines. And they, they're really annoying. They produce a lot of precipitation, and they really and they have an impact, they're basically a way for relatively small scale circulations to have a large impact on atmospheric circulation over much wider distances. So there are a way in which relatively small structures in the atmosphere end up having a much bigger impact. Particularly, it turns out on precipitation, there's actually parts of the Earth, particularly West Africa, where they're the dominant producer of precipitation. And I heard a talk this week that said, you know, where, where, where someone was talking about um, effectively the, the, the take-home of the talk was everything that you know about how to predict precipitation in tropical Africa is wrong. <laughs> and I, I was a bit skeptical about this, but, 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 but the professor, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it's Sharon Nicholson at Florida State, obviously was an expert. There was no question... I, you know, anybody who can show a paper and s with the, the thing that she's claiming is wrong and then say it's her paper and it's from <laughs> 20, 30 years ago is probably onto something. And so I went up, you know, I went yesterday and looked into it and realized that, yes, she was indeed onto something. And when I asked her a question in the session, which was, you know, effectively how... I, I rely on these climate models to, to, do, to do things in order to understand what's going on with the climate 300 billion years ago. What, do I, what am I going to do? How am I going to interpret what's going on? Because obviously my entire interpretive paradigm is wrong. <laughs> and she said, well, climate models don't really have these things in them. Like, and I'm just pausing and going, 
oh, this looks like an interesting research direction. Yeah. And I look it up and I find out that, you know, maybe I'll be, have to be the first person to apply these models to 300 million years ago, but chances are someone's going to beat me to more recent climates because they, are te they have been testing these things over the last two or three years. But that said, I think this is going to be a major, major advance in understanding particularly a lot of things that have happened over the last two million years, where there are a lot more people working on climate the last two million years than there are of any of the millions of years before then. And in particular, understanding, say, precipitation in places like tropical Africa, which are critical for understanding, say, the history of human evolution, or understanding, you know, what happened to various megafauna over the last, you know, 10 or 12 million years, or what happened to grass, you know, how did grasslands develop? All of those things are going to improve. <laughs> Pardon me. And, and so I think there, I think that's going to be a big advance. And the second thing that I think is going to be an advance, though I, I suspect it will be, I, I suspect it will be very, uh, people won't understand it initially. There will be a lot of people, there will be a few people who will bring out these kinds of things and then no one will understand what they were do they're doing. And then 10 years later, everyone will understand this. And that is about um, coming up ways, uh, com coming up with ways of running climate models without running climate models. That is coming up a with a way of running a climate model. And these days, people do something called ensembles, where they run climate models with a whole variety of initial sl slight variations in initial conditions. And then they average them out in the end to get a new result and also look at the spread in the ensemble to see how sensitive the climate model is to particular assumptions. What I think we're going to see in the next few years is people coming up with a variety of techniques to do this in a much more computationally efficient way such that we are going to be able to explore the space of every fudge factor you can imagine, a lot of which, which will be connected with actually how biology responds to climate. Uh, particularly, you know, how much soil or how much carbon in the soil do trees bury, that kind of thing. Um, and they're just going to come up with ways of effectively varying those parameters without necessarily having to run the entire climate model. And then coming up with some incredibly... What worries me is is then they're going to have to come up with a way of visualing, visualizing this all and reducing it into ways that other people could understand. But I keep seeing talks every once in a while that are, I'm going to find some way of making the... making uh, allowing you to run the climate model a billion times without running the climate model a billion times. So I think that's going to be a big advance in the in the near future. But again, I think it's going to probably take a decade for the graduates, you know, for the graduate students who are trained to actually learn the techniques and then all the old fuddy-duddies like me are going to be very confused. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> um Nick, it's certainly been super fun talking to you about climate models, and I've definitely learned a lot about how the computing aspect of it works. But before we let you go, I have to ask, did Jorge Cham draw your Twitter picture? Yes, indeed. Uh, oh! <laughs> so I'm so jealous. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I donated to the Kickstarter for the PhD sequel, and that was, uh, that was one of the benefits. And the funny, thing, the funny thing about that picture is that it, that's actually based on a picture from my engagement shoot. Oh. And, I, and so I sent it to him quite early, and he sort of displayed on his webpage at some point, you know, here are the pictures, the ones I've already drawn. And here's the embarrassing thing. It did say like Nicholas on it at some point, you know, and that was like that would, might have been the first or the second picture that he posted on his page. But I will admit that I did not initially recognize myself. <laughs> I said, 
That could be me, but it could not be me. Has he actually found it? Has something gotten lost in the mail? <laughs> and then I received it several months later and realized, Nick, you didn't recognize yourself? He's not actually a bad artist. He's actually a really good artist. <laughs> that's wonderful. That, that's great, yes. And, of course, the PhD movie is exceptional. Oh, uh, yes. So, yes, uh, and 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 actually, it's uh, it's funny because uh, a lot of my graduate school office and the neighboring office were involved in producing and starring in the movie or doing the soundtrack. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I also have to ask, y- you are on the IMDb. Yes, it's that's. I'll, I'll keep that story as short as possible. I uh, was tweeting with someone somehow when I was at Cornell and it turned out it was a a couple of people who were producing a web series um, in Binghamton, you know, and they were filming in Binghamton, New York. And they ended up inviting me out to be sort of their technical consultant for a series that they were making where the premise is effectively the Russians successfully sent a mission, a a, a human mission to Mars uh, in the 70s or something. And then they decided to send the, you know, the child who had been born on Mars back to Earth. And that's, it's called Pioneer One. That was the premise. And uh, Josh Bernhard was the writer. And I think he keeps trying to, uh, to, to pitch it to networks. So uh, you <laughs> might see Pioneer One show up in the, fr- in the future. Fingers crossed. I say, there we go. I'll have to keep an eye out for it. Uh, well, so Nick, before we let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to add? No. Uh, y- y'all have been great. Uh, I-, I hope. I hope uh, this has been a, a, a nice cast for you. And, you know, the only thing I'd like to say is how impressed I have been to hear these episodes. So I can only hope that uh, I'm not going to bring down the standard. Oh, absolutely <laughs> not. This has been great. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. And, and if folks want to find you, keep up with your research, uh, see what you're up to, how would you like to be found on the Internet? Really, the best way to follow me is my Twitter feed, at weather on Mars. Um, the at symbol, weather like the weather, O-N-M-A-R-S like the planet. All right, great. And we will put that in the show notes for our listeners. Nick, thanks for taking the time to join us. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Shannon. St. John. Well, Shannon, I certainly learned a lot from talking to Nick. Uh, so did I. I learned that I'm super excited. There are people who are trying to synthesize geology and meteorology out there besides us, because neither one of us does as good a job as Nick does. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but it wouldn't be a show if we didn't wrap up with everybody's favorite segment, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Whoa. Whoa. Did you not pack your cowbell, John? I do not have the travel size cowbell. Ah, we're going to have to get uh, get somebody on that. I, I, I tried with the hotel water glasses, and it just didn't have any good effect. So, <laughs> Man, disappointing. But, but it is not disappointing because everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. That is the title of this week's fun paper. Everything is awesome, colon, Don't Forget the Lego by Tag et al. And this appears in the Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health and was sent to us by listener Mark. I don't understand why so many of our fun papers have to be about swallowing things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, medicine is an easy target for this. It's just so funny. It just makes me think that we should be, you know, different kinds of PhDs in an alternate universe. But uh, as this paper suggests... You mean real doctors? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I mean. (laughs) Um, As this paper suggests, this is about people swallowing Legos and seeing how fast it takes to go through them. (laughs) Right. And they said that, you know, there's a lot of literature, and we've discussed some of it, (laughs) about swallowing coins. Right. (laughs) But... The second most commonly swallowed item by children when they're in that exploring, you know, six months to three year stage 
is toy parts. And they thought, well, what other common toy part is there than a Lego head? Oh, it's so true. I don't even think I could count the number of Lego heads we have in this household. Yes. <laughs> um, hopefully not in the toilets, though. <laughs> well, you know, they had to uh, do some kind of methods, right, <laughs> to determine how long it would take a Lego piece to pass through. Uh, and they didn't want to experiment on children, obviously. So they selected... Uh, or had people volunteer, and as long as you had not had any previous gastrointestinal surgery, you had the ability to swallow a foreign object, and you weren't adverse to searching through fecal matter, (laughs) you were eligible to participate. I love it. And so they got a whopping six participants. (laughs) I would have participated in this study. Oh, absolutely. Like, I would have been like, give me that Lego head and down the hatch. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but this is a real study, and in that vein, (laughs) um, (laughs) there are some indices that come out of this study, correct? (laughs) Yes, so there are uh, a couple. One is the stool hardness and transit score, which is a combination of how often and what consistency. And the stool hardness and transit score is obviously abbreviated SHAT. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> um, not to be um, outdone, it's followed up because you have to figure out how long it takes to get this guy out, right? Um, the primary outcome of the study was the found and retrieve time or the fart score. <laughs> and there is a plot here of the. Shat versus fart parameters for uh, each participant. I, I figured that you would let it go that it's clearly in Excel. Right. It, it is. All, all the plots in here are very clearly Excel plots with the defaults. Uh, but, you know, I'll reproduce this for them in Python. Uh, <laughs> uh, so this is really funny because apart from this paper, a friend and I were talking about um, her son has some digestional issues, and they actually have, and they use this in this paper, a stool hardness scale. And when she found out about this, because she has to rate this for her son's um, appointments, she called and she said, guess what? There's a Mohs scale for poop. (laughs) (laughs) So she was really excited and took to writing down stuff like talc or corundum. So... And Nick, if you're lucky, that won't be the title of your interview episode. <laughs> or if you are lucky. <laughs> so they they swallowed these Lego heads, and then they, every time they had a bowel movement, went digging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they found that there is some evidence, though not a statistically significant sample, that men are really bad at finding things in their poop compared to females. <laughs> right, because patient B had to search 13 stools over two-week period and still never found the Lego head. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I thought was interesting is that also the other two males took an average of three days to find the Lego head, and the females were one, one, and two days. Yeah. So that, you know, it's interesting that it seems that men process things more slowly. Uh, <laughs> as as they... every wife knows. <laughs> <laughs> you can direct that email to... <laughs> So uh, the one variable here, obviously, is we're talking about people with a median age of in their late 20s mm-hmm. versus children. Right. And they said that if anything, things probably pass a little bit faster through a more mature gut, uh, but it doesn't really impact the findings of the study, and that they actually think that the guidance to if your child swallows a piece of a toy that you should keep looking for it until you're sure it's passed, they think that's probably not good guidance because... They said one of our participants with a PhD in medicine couldn't find it. So (laughs) (laughs) there's no good reason it's going to pass harmlessly. Exactly. Um, So that's uh, that's pretty interesting that they say this several several times through here that, you know, if they swallow a small toy, whatever, just let it go. You know, Um, as we've seen before on other ones, magnets, however, are a different thing. But um, Legos, eat them up, kids. (laughs) Right. And... uh, (laughs) 
I, I really like that they say the so the fart score is shorter than the fart score for coins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they say the reasons why this are, are not clear, and they may only be answered by a f- factorial design study in which both coins and Lego heads are swallowed, ideally with one steady arm, including swallowing a Lego figurine holding a coin. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I'm not going to lie. I actually went and, and recreated that. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> just to see, you know, just to see size. I put a quarter, and I got a Lego figurine with a coin. And then just the head. I don't think I'd want the figurine with the coin, but unless it's just the arm with the coin, then we go. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And they also say that the school, the stool hardness and transit score is not a great surrogate for surmising the bowel pattern, but they say the fact that participants can shat themselves without specialist knowledge makes it an inexpensive tool. Uh, there was nothing about this paper that I didn't love. This was a fantastic paper. I'm definitely not going to flush it away with all the other papers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Mark, thanks for sending this in. And this is a open access paper, so you can click the link in the show description and read this short three-page paper for yourself. If you would like to not send us your results of your own (laughs) Lego swallowing study, Uh, but if you have any fun papers that you would like to send us, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, You can send us those, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And together we are at don'tpanicgeo. Um, You can find us in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping making <laughs> this investigative journalism possible. <laughs> <laughs> and until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our